certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Telstra Navy, the piece of fabric that delayed the trial of the century for more than four months. Welcome to Day 69 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo, Alison Fan, and criminal defence lawyer Damien Cripps with you. So Tim Clark isn't with us for this podcast. He's been working on a huge story here in Australia, which is the acquittal of George Pell, who has walked free today after seven High Court judges quashed child sex convictions against the Cardinal. So while this has dominated news across the country today, meanwhile, Ali... Uh, the Claremont trial is zipping through. It is zipping through. In fact, I think we've almost got an end in sight. In fact, I think we're talking about weeks rather than we were originally talking about months. And it just shows how this actual coronavirus has got everyone pulling together, literally the accused, the defence team, the prosecution, all sort of cooperating to um, get things done. And they're being done very, very quickly. And a lot of the evidence, as is today, was... Uh, by video link and being read in. And we certainly got a lesson today in textiles and fabric and weaving and knitting, literally thread by thread. But I guess the prosecution is leaving no stone unturned as to how she's going to prove step by step how this fabric was linked to the fibres that were linked to the victims of the, of the killings. Damien, are you surprised by just how fast this trial is moving now and, and the fact that, you know, uh, witnesses are not being cross-examined and these kinds of things? I'm, I'm not surprised how fast it's um, moving, Nat, but I, I guess how fast it's moving is a subjective view because it, it might seem like it's moving fast at the moment, but it wouldn't take much for us to get held up again. You know, it wouldn't take much for the, this trial to be held up again. Um, so in my view is whenever you're in a trial environment and things start moving what, what seemingly quickly, it's a good thing, make the most of it, because it could stop at any minute, you know, as we've witnessed in this trial and the listeners would have witnessed as well, um, you know, anything could happen on any day that will cause you to be held up for, a, um, you know, any amount of time. So and we know, of course, that the delay in the trial would have cost the state a lot of money. And, and Ali, this was really all about this piece of fabric which you heard about today, this piece of Nels Telstra Navy fabric. Well, it's about the fabric, it's about the dyeing of it, it's about the thread count. And obviously the judge thought it was important enough to delay at great, great cost this trial by more than four months. This trial was due to start in July last year. It was pushed back to November more than four months later at great cost to everybody, great delays to the court process. But obviously the judge thought it was important enough to make that delay. And um, what we're hearing today was that these tests were being done not only on the fabric, but the dyeing method, uh, the whole t entire Literally, the textile industry, the weaving thing, was all being done in May last year, which is just a few weeks before the trial was set to start. So that caught my eye, and I thought, here we are wondering what all this um, last-minute evidence was going to be. Well, we're hearing it now, and because of the great detail we're hearing it, and we can understand why um, those delays were necessary. And Damien, we touched on this in a podcast last week about how important this 
fabric evidence is and the fibre evidence is, given the crucial evidence is the DNA evidence that we've already heard? Well, it's not easy to answer um, when I'm not living inside the trial, but I think a good way to look at it would be that if a listener or a person who's following this trial was of the view that the prosecution was going to have some problems proving this case beyond a reasonable doubt, and I'm not saying they are, I'm just saying if a listener or a person, uh, a viewer of this trial was thinking that, then they would view the fabric as very important because it's another link in the, the, the chain that needs to be signed off on, if I could put it that way. If someone was view, watching this trial from afar and was of the view that the prosecution was doing... Um, a, a really, really good job and had was meeting all the tests and all the thresholds, well, then the fabric would be important then as well because the, the fabric is part of that story. So if you think about it from this way, Nat and Ali, you, you get a situation where you've got a piece of fabric and, and everyone who's um, following along with this um, trial would be mindful that that fabric's important. And I'm not certain that everybody uh, understands why that fabric's important. And it's quite simple to break down. It's found in a person's hair and it's important because that person is a victim of a crime. And, and I'm not necessarily talking specifically about this trial, but if you think about it in like the context that the person whose hair it's found in is the victim of a crime, and what detail does the fabric give to us? What details can the fabric give to us? Well, they're some of the things that we saw from the witnesses today, Nat, and, and they are what time period that that fabric was created. So, so we can find similar um, pieces of fabric from the same manufacturer that could give us an indication of when that fabric was created. The colours, how did that come to be that colour? And, you know, we, we could um, extrapolate from the piece of fabric that was find, found in the victim's hair samples that would tell us um, what the, the dye pigmentation was. Um, and, and so all of these things, if they marry up to a person who is alleged to have been the person who perpetrated the crime on that victim... What this fabric does is link that person to the, um, to the crime, the, the crime, that's, crime that's committed. Now, I know that seems really simple when I say it out like, loud mm. like that, mm. but the, the problem with that is when you start to say things like um, the piece of fabric, what year was it made, what um, pieces of uh, – what colours went into making up that colour, uh, what thread count was it or any of those kinds of things, you are revealing to – the person who's considering this fabric, all of the variances that could play into how specific a piece of fabric could be. Um, so I think that my view, just from what I can see, and, and, and obviously um, I'm sure the listeners have all ha would all have a view on this as well, is that the fabric does play a key part because if the person who was making a decision about this ultimately was feeling a little bit weak on the DNA, the fabric would give them some support, if I could put it that way. You'd say, well, it's not just the DNA, there's this piece of fabric as well. Um, so it's really important, I think, from the prosecution's point of view, and it's really important from the defence point of view as well, um, which I'm sure we'll get into in a, little, in a minute. But the point that I wanted to get to was that um, the most important thing about this piece of fabric is, and it has to be and will always be, is that the reason why the prosecution are required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt these things is because we want to know the full story, the fullest possible version of the story we can get. Don't leave anything out. You just give us everything you've got. So, so I think that the, the test that is 
proving something beyond a reasonable doubt provides the court with the best possible story they can get. So I think that the fabric is really, really super important. Yeah, and I guess as we keep saying in this podcast, to get to that, you can leave no stone unturned and that's really what we're seeing here day after day in this courtroom. Ali, the first witness today was Nalani Rendeni. Now, she's a quality assurance and lab team leader with the Australian Textile Mills. Can you just talk through to us a little bit about when she received this piece of fabric, uh, did she know why it was being tested and, and what was she asked to test it for? No, she didn't. She said she didn't know uh, why she was testing it. This was way back in May. Uh, well, well, not way back. That was just a couple of months before the trial was due to start. She was just given this fabric and was asked to test it um, and do a standard Australian test on it. She wasn't aware why the sample was being tested and a document um, detailing the test results um, that were carried out um, on this modified fabric sample was shown to the court. Now, I think probably when we moved on uh, to the actual type of fabric, and this is where we've got the fibres, where we're going, going down to the nitty-gritty of what luster they had, whether they were shiny, whether they were rayon, whether they were natural. And that's where the prosecution has zoned in on these um, actual makeup of the fabric, which does link to the fibres found on the victims. Not only the, the type of fibre, whether but also the colour. And even getting to the colour, which they originally described as dark navy, it then had its its own particular dye called Tilstra Navy. And she even, she didn't go, she went as far as saying it was consistent because she had to take into the fact that the master sample of Tilstra Navy, if you compare it to a fabric that's been washed and washed and laundered and worn and washed again, obviously it's not going to be a total match. But she said it was certainly consistent with one that had been laundered and worn with, with the master sample called Tilstra Navy. And of course, this is crucial to um, the prosecution case, that it was a Telstra Navy fabric, not just an ordinary dark Navy one. With this particular witness, she was actually talking about the yarn itself, how yarns are plied together, what happens when they're twisted, what happens when they're separated. It was extraordinary detail. Um, the fabric itself was a combination of polyester and viscose, the thread count, how many thread counts were involved in this particular weaving and um, fabric makeup. It was quite, it was amazing detail. But of course, this is what she has to go into because she's got to um, provide, I guess, for the prosecution that it is the same fabric. And do we know what the fabric is? Is it cotton, polyester, polyester? It's visco? polyester. It's polyester. In fact, originally when we were listening to the fibre evidence, we were told there are only two fibres, natural and man-made. And this particular fabric is man-made. It's uh, polyester and viscose, which apparently is the same as rayon. I'm learning a lot here <laughs> with fabrics, um, literally thread by thread. I mean, the only thread I used to think about was to do with cotton sheets. But now we're yes. thinking about how thread by thread of every type of fabric is woven and twisted and pulled apart and redone and over and over again. And of course, we've gone through that extraordinary detail today, which is what the prosecution wants, to show that there is no doubt that this is the fabric that matched the fibres found on the victims. So, Damien, this is coming back to what you were speaking about and really just showing that this fibre is exactly the fibres that we're talking about uh, that have been found in a victim's, in victim's hair. Well, if I, I wouldn't be so 
I wouldn't be so sold on that idea. But th that's just me personally. I, I mean, I, I my view is that um, that it's a it's a long bow to draw. But I I think that potentially the way you could word it is you could say um, structurally it was made up of the same materials. Um, you know, contextually it had all the same um, uh, elements of as what this um, as what perhaps the the suspect was would have been wearing back at the time. And and perhaps Nat, you could assist me here. Mm. Am I understanding what Ali has told us correctly in in that the that this person has given evidence yes. that um, that this is a sample that was taken from the suspect. trouser leg. Yes, from the trouser leg, from a trouser worn by Telstra technicians back in 1996 and 1997. They literally dissected the material itself. Okay, so that's really good, Ali, because what that, that helps us if we're thinking about trying to get to the bottom of the, the question. Remember, going back to what I was talking about, that there was a piece of fibre found in a victim's hair. Mm. So the piece of fibre is going to tell us something about the person who was around the person at the time that they, they potentially were the, the victim of a crime. So, But what we've got here, what's been tested here, is a piece of material from a sample of a pair of pants that was worn by people in that role at the time. Correct. So, so, so we're sort of starting to draw, you know, stretch the bow out a little bit there because it's not like we found a pair of the um, suspect's trousers from that time and we're testing against that fibre because then we'd start to say, well, okay, this is really good because we know these are the suspect's trousers and we know that this material is really, really, really going to direct us straight to this fibre and if it doesn't, we've got a problem. But what we've actually got is a, a, a similar pair of trousers. So... The question that you might ask yourself if you're pondering how this helps us and how you can get to the bottom of it is, how many people in Australia in that period of time were wearing those pants that were, were the same as the samples? Now, we don't, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm sure someone could probably tell us. But you'd have to assume that it's more than one person. So let's hypothetically say there's 20 people in Australia wearing those pants around the time. So the result is you've got numerous people that can be connected to that fibre in the in the victim's hair. The issue with that is then, that surely can't satisfy beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I don't think any person could argue that if there was 10 people that were wearing trousers that satisfied that sample at the period of time, that you could pin it on one of them. You couldn't. We'd have to say, well, we don't know. But if you think now a little bit further, combine that consideration with the evidence we were talking about for the DNA. So yeah. now you've got a, a consideration where, as you, let's say you've got your 10 people that are wearing the trousers, and you've got your DNA sample, you would have thought, and we can't say because the world dishes up very strange things every day, to, every day of our lives, what I'm living through at the moment, um, that you would think that out of those 10 people that are wearing those pants, only one of them would have the matching DNA. And then, and then you're starting to get into a place where it becomes very difficult to um, eliminate that person. Uh, Damien, I initially thought that too, that um, how many other workers were wearing these particular uh, workers, uh, Yakka navy blue um, trousers, but they have now uh, shown through the, I think, the evidence today and previously that the, the fabric was made specifically for and the colour for Telstra workers. So uh, it and, would be, that, that, yeah. So, so that's good, Ali, because, I mean, you know, let's say we, we were talking about Australia in a certain period of time and how many people in Australia um, 
would be wearing those pair of pants and you might say, well, oh, there's a thousand. But then you say, okay, well, now we're satisfied that it is definitely Telstra Telstra. issued yeah. pants. Mm. Well, now we're down to 104. You, you, mm. you see, we've still got that group of people that would yep. be very difficult to say, We've got 104 people. I, I said 10 before, but I, I mean, it doesn't matter yep. which number you use. I think as soon as you've got multiple people, beyond a yep. reasonable doubt is not an answer you can reach. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is where the fibre portion of the trial does differ from the DNA evidence that we've already heard. But I guess at the same time, what we're looking at is a whole series of uh, what combination. we call coincidences, mm. perhaps, until that point where we said this the other day, that uh, a coincidences, when there is so many of them, perhaps they're no longer a coincidence. Well, this is a combination of things, isn't it? It's a combination of the DNA and of the um, fibres and the fact that now she's proving pretty well step by step that this fabric was Tilstra. Maybe now you could say, okay, there are other Tilstra technicians maybe who are wearing these uh, trousers. Um, but then you're sort of mm, combining it with the DNA and the um, other evidence so far. I've swung around because I originally thought that this was just fabric worn by any worker. Now that we're seeing step by step, thread by thread, colour by colour, dye by dye, it was only for Telstra. Um, I swung around a bit. And, and, and so, Ali, sorry, Nat, um, I know you, you I just it. want to cut in there and say, Ali, one of the things, a typical de defence lawyer, but um, one of the issues with that is we've narrowed it down to the number, I'll just say, the number 104 people that have issued Telstra pants and they're wearing them. And then the, the next issue is who's to say, that I didn't lend my Telstra pants to my friend. I mean, you know, it just keeps going on and on. I mean, there's, it's certainly, mm. when you tie it in with the DNA, then you are starting to really yeah. lock something in. Uh, but when yeah. you're just looking at the fibres, that, for, for my mind, that's just for my mind, it's a bit loose. No, no, I totally understand that. If it was just the uh, fibres alone, but when we're hearing it's also the DNA and it's also linked to the Karakata rape victim, to which he's pleaded guilty to, that's when I'm starting to think, oh, okay, um, this is shoring up. It's the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Well, Ali, you mentioned earlier about the actual colour of the fabric, and this was in evidence from Liberty Wagner Chavez, and she was the product development ma manager at Bruck Textiles. What did she tell you about the actual colour and how the colour was created um, and what she knew about the colour? Well, she said that it was a colour that was actually created. Originally, it was just called dark navy. Uh, but then they, when I think Tilstra wanted its own colour, it was actually given its own name as Tilstra navy, which was a slightly different, uh, I guess, dye. She said they used two lots of dyes to make sure they got that colour. They dyed one lot, then they uh, waited till it dried. Then they dyed the uh, polyester part, waited till that dried. And that's how they got the particular Telstra Navy fabric. So it's gone quite specifically into uh, how this colour evolved and how it was unique to Telstra workwear. Right. And was this particular colour uh, sold to other companies or a no. version of it? No, apparently not. That's what, that's what I originally was thinking. Well, how I'm sure every worker around town's wearing these navy things. But she said, no, it was specifically done for Telstra. And then she's gone into the, the makeup of the fabric, which was 65% polyester and 
this goes rayon. Um, she's gone into the yarn, the way that way it's woven. That's we're talking about the fabric, and we're talking about the colour. And she said um, that at one stage, um, I think the prosecutor asked uh, her at any point if Yaka, the company that made the Telstra uniforms, or if Telstra requested any change to be made to the colour. She said no, she wasn't aware of it. So it's been that colour for a, a long while. Since about nineteen, since the eighties, I think it was. And Ali, was uh, she cross-examined? Uh, no, the cross-examination has been put off until tomorrow, and they filled the today's court time by just reading a few other statements in. The uh, defence wants some time, and they'll start cross-examination tomorrow. Okay, and did they reveal why they were unable to cross-examine today? Have they? Did they not uh, see this evidence in time? I think there's a lot that they've got to go through and I think they want to pick it um, at it bit by bit by bit as much as, as we've been presented at bit by bit. So um, it was quite late in the day when she finished up and I think that uh, they want to think about it overnight and then resume at, clock, at 10 o'clock tomorrow with the, uh, with the cross-examination. Okay, so just before we go, we've got a question from a listener here, Dale in Brisbane, and he says, as I listened to the podcast on fibre evidence, it struck me, despite Tim describing it in such a positive way, that it is very circumstantial and to an outsider sounded like very damaging testimony to the prosecution's case. For Damien, he asks... Doesn't this evidence leave massive holes for a defence lawyer to expose in relation to how the fibres could have practically come from anywhere or anyone? And this, of course, is just what we've been discussing. But, yeah, but it's a really good question um, from Dale because I think a, a really good way to look at that is I'm not sure that you would say it leaves massive holes because we're in a unique situation in this trial whereas we've got a judge alone, not just, not just a judge, but one of the best, if not the best in the state. So I think for the defence team here, it wouldn't be a case where you would need to stand up and um, poke all those holes because it, they, would be, they would be staring the judge in the face. One of the things the defence would be ne need to be mindful of is that if they left, even the defence, as we're talking about the prosecution, if they leave a stone unturned, there's potentially, uh, it potentially won't assist them if there's an appeal that needs to happen. And today's an extremely important today uh, in Australia to talk about appeals because we've just seen what's happened with that High Court case. And, and um, they, it, it happens all the time when people are dissatisfied with what's been found in the courts. It travels all the way up to the top and, um, and a number of different courts will get to have a look at how this trial or any trial have taken place. And so the point that I'm making is there's this massive hole for a defence lawyer to um, expose, if, if, you, if the way Dale has put it, but you've got, to, you've got to find a balance because you don't want to over, be overzealous because there's a very intelligent judge sitting at the head um, listening to what you're doing. But you also don't want to leave it uncovered because for the purposes of appeal, you need to make sure it's on the transcript. Um, and, and so when I think about Dale's question in the context of um, whether it was damaging to the prosecution case, I'm not of the view that it is damaging to the prosecution, prosecution case because... My view is in relation to the fibre, it's it, it's just tying this suspect in. That's what they're attempting to do with the fibre. So they're saying, we've already got all this DNA material that's um, tying him in, but now we're adding this into it as well. You can, you can shoot as many holes in it as you want, but you can't deny that 
he was a Telstra employee, and I'm proposing that this is what the prosecution might say, that you can't deny that he was a Telstra employee and this fibre was found in the victim's hair and we've had Telstra um, material specialists come and tell us that that was the Tel Telstra material. Uh, there is a lot of circumstantial elements about that evidence, but when, as we've discussed, if you tie it in with the other things, it, 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 it's certainly... Not, I wouldn't have said it the way Dale does, but I understand why he's saying it, that it's damaging testimony. I think it's just something they're adding in to um, bolster their case up. Yeah. Well, he um, asked... Sorry to butt in there, but we've got to also consider the fibre that was found on the rape victim. Same type of fibre um, on the Karakata rape victim that led to all of this. Well, yes. Yeah, so that—that's the that. If you if you put it that way, I mean, um, and and Dale might not have been aware of that, aware of that. This is one of the things that, um, you know, the legal teams are dealing with all the time. There's so many elements to trials like this, and this one in particular, that when you're turning your mind to this piece of fibre that was found in the victim's hair, and you have a conversation, and you you're debating about it, and you're thinking about, oh, what about that? What? It only takes someone um over on the on the other line there, Ali. Yes, up there. And says, yep. well, what about that piece of um, evidence? And, and it refreshes your mind that there's, you know, there's... Um, the the fibre on playing, the rape victim, yeah, to which he's pleaded guilty to. It's playing a pretty big part in the whole thing, um, now that Ali reminds me of that. Mm. Well, Dale also asks a similar question to our forensic expert, Brendan, who's obviously not in the podcast today, but we flicked him a question across. And he says to Brendan, is it correct that this fibre evidence is all circumstantial? And while the prosecution have tried to link them to Mr Edwards, it cannot be proven definitively that the fibres are from him, his clothes or his car and could have come from many sources. Brendan has said to us, I wouldn't use the term circumstantial and I'm interested mm. to see how the likelihood or probability is presented in court. But you're right that it can't be definitively linked to an individual or their clothing. This is the case with many trials whereby any single piece of evidence alone can be easily dismissed by chance. But you have to consider the chance of DNA contamination and the chance of fibres from an unrelated individual and the chance of some details of witness testimonies being wrong is starting to sound less probable. But this is why a jury or judge needs to make the decision on the balance of all the evidence. And that's exactly what, uh, you know, we have just been discussing, right, Damien? Well, I think that, I mean, look, my view on that's a little bit different to Brendan's. That's okay because that's what makes this system so wonderful. If you get a lot of people working on it, you know, you can have healthy debates about things. My view is that, um, that, that it's more circumstantial than it is direct because direct evidence is something that supports the truth of an assertion directly, uh, you know, without any interfering inference, if intervening inference. So, so my argument in the context of what um, Brendan has said and, and, it's very difficult for Brendan, uh, so please don't misinterpret. I'm, I'm not saying that he's wrong because I haven't had the opportunity to um, spitball with him, if I could put it that way, uh, in relation to it. But what we were talking about before was how that this, there's this piece of material that's sent to the, um, the testing lab at the material factory and it's tested and it's said to have been from the time and certainly from the Telstra pants that were issued and it's certainly um, consistent with the, something that's been washed and worn a lot of times. Okay, so that's that's a, a group of things we know about this um, piece of material. But what it what intervenes is that 
so the inference is that the, the um, suspect is wearing those pants at the time he commits the crime. That's the inference. And, and what I would say is that there is an intervening inference, and that is that somebody else could have been wearing those pants. That, that's, to me, that's the blatant thing that makes it circumstantial rather than direct. But Brendan, Brendan may be able to explain mm. how he uh, comes to the view that he, he has, um, but that's just my view. But, the, um, but Damien, DNA is not circumstantial, is it? Oh, well, I would say in some cases, Ellie, it is. Unless, and of I'll course, it's been contaminated, <laughs> as the defence is. No, 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 because unfortunately, um, it's we've, and we've talked about this before, that the, the issue is the way that the DNA... Um, the way that the DNA system works is we get given a description from a person working in DNA that says yeah. something to the effect of um, it is 10 million times more likely that this DNA would exist if person X was a contributor. Mm. Uh, and, and so for me, that says it's possible that this person's a contributor. This DNA would exist and it's possible that this person could have contributed to it. So so, bought, so, but don't forget, he's already pleaded guilty to the Karakata rape. So he says that DNA that matched the kimono was his by pleading guilty to the Karakata. I think it's all hinging back to the Karakata victim who, um, to me, is a linchpin in this whole case. Okay. And, and like, Ali, I agree. I Just, just mm. to clarify, I, I, when I was talking about um, the, the DNA that I was talking about, then I was talking generally. So generally mm -hmm. speaking... Um, DNA certainly can be direct evidence, but I, I, my, my view is that sometimes DNA can have an element of um, uncertainty about it as well. <laughs> what I didn't, yeah, say, what I didn't say contamination, but I mean, I'm certainly sure it can be contaminated. I mean, yeah. there's, um, you know, at the end of the day, as we've experienced through this trial, um, that there, we are humans and we, we make mistakes. And when I say we make mistakes, we make tiniest of mistakes that can have a huge ripple effect so it's certainly um, not a case where anyone would say that somebody who made a mistake in, in the in the course of working with the evidence intended for it to be that way sometimes that's just what happened I am um, just listening to this discussion between the two of you I can't help but muse how impossible it would have been for a jury to come to some kind of a unanimous decision on this, which is um, just as well we have a judge alone for this trial. Thank you both so very much for your time today and thanks for your company. You can join myself, Tim Clark, and guest Tom Percy QC tomorrow for day 70 of Claremont in Conversation. Chat to you then. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. For a fresh take on the news that matters, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live, with Jenna Clark at thewest.com.au. The West Live not only delivers on what the day's big news stories mean for WA with hard-hitting interviews and analysis, but it will also make you smile with light-hearted chats and local gossip. The West Live, like talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.